Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startups to enterprise, everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's largest single free resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to-follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in sunny Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Hey there, listeners. We spend a lot of time on this show talking to people who manage digital products. But what does product management look like when the product you're selling can't be held in your hand or interfaced with through a computer? What if your product is energy? Today's guest is Andrew Kirchner from Inspire, and he's here to talk to us about managing invisible product. Let's get started. All right, Andrew Kirchner. Is it Kirchner? That's me. That's you. And you have a beard now. I do. How's that beard? going for you. You know, I fluctuate on beards uh, and mustaches too. I'm an avid Movember participant. Oh, it's coming up. It is. It is. Uh, our whole organization does actually. Our CTO had, had the kind of what we call the Ambrose Burns side where it comes down from the sideburns and up into a mustache. He was our winner last year. Uh, but the beard's coming along well. Did the people in your personal life cringe when it's like the eve of November 1 because they know Andrew as they know him <laughs> is going to go down a slippery... Yeah, that and because I'm going to hit them up for donations the entire month. Oh, yeah. Um, which is never fun. Four or five emails minimum. I do challenges. A few years ago, I dyed my mustache jet black because someone agreed to give me $500 for prostate cancer awareness. So All right. it gets pretty obnoxious fast. So we'll take this conversation as a warning. <laughs> yeah. Everybody get ready. It's coming. Yeah. All right. You're glad and, you got Open me. your wallets. Andrew's <laughs> coming for you. Uh you know, it's interesting. Well, first of all, tell us your title here. Yep. I'm Director of Product and Strategic Market Development. Director of Product and Strategic Market Development. Correct. What does that actually mean? It means I have two jobs. One is Director of Product and one is Director of Strategic Market Development. Uh, it gets a little bit into how I joined Inspire. Um, so I joined uh, with the pretense. We were a really young company. I was going to be sort of the Swiss Army guy who attacked a lot of commercial operations needs, whether it was business development and corporate development, whether it was expanding into new geographies or new product verticals, worked on that for a while and that sort of naturally evolved into a product role. I was sort of doing a lot of things product would do anyways. And so when we got to the uh, point of deciding, hey, we are a product-driven organization, despite being an energy business, we are gonna uh, to really focus on that. It was sort of a natural transition for me to take on a bunch of those responsibilities. So you were an early employee, employee number 12, was that? Something like that, yeah, 12, 15. How many employees now? Uh, 45, 50, somewhere in there. Okay, so did you see that as an opportunity? You know, do startups kind of hit this certain scale and then in your experience, you're like, I bet they're in pain right now because <laughs> there's scaling and there's gaps and I'm going to go in. Yeah, I had diverse interests too. I, I sort of felt that if I, my sweet spot when I was looking was 5 to 20. 
and I felt that, which is sort of the series seed, series A stage, and I felt that if I got too much later, I was going to be asked to have a very specific skill set, and A, I wasn't totally convinced I had a very specific skill set yet, and B, I wanted to try a few different things and felt I could add value in a bunch of different areas, so I was looking for a role where the the actual day-to-day responsibilities weren't super defined, and it gave me the ability to go where I could add most value, and um, the, over the course of the year and a half, uh, past year and a half, that ended up being product. Because I think what's interesting about your story is you didn't necessarily you came for the company you mm-hmm. didn't come for the role mm-hmm. because you love energy right yeah I do uh, I love something that not many other people love well I love the environment I guess you could say okay. and we do have a really mission driven culture here it's it's no BS we really care about making a, a big impact on the world um, and we're sort of a, a double bottom line company in some ways uh, where it's profits and environment and I came from I went to law school and I sort of had this stint as a environmental prosecutor where I was chasing down people who polluted lakes or tire factories or uh, things of that nature. And I realized pretty quickly that that was too backwards looking. It wasn't going to be um, building a, a more sustainable future. It was going to be trying to punish people who 15 years ago committed some ill, which is um, a valuable um, certainly a valuable task but for me it was how can I uh, make a difference in this mission in a forward-looking way how can I build the companies of the future um, that are going to address climate change that are going to address resource scarcity Um, so I went to work at a a firm that was working with early stage companies who were addressing exactly those needs so everything from uh, clean tech software platforms to biofuels companies to a bunch of the big public solar companies uh, really got the bug for working with startups, loved being sort of a strategic advisor to you know two people and an idea, and uh, loved seeing that all the way to through fruition through several uh, venture financing rounds and up through uh, you know exit and uh, got the bug. wanted to be an early stage company that had that same mission that had been that had been guiding me. Talk about the difference in experience. One of the things that we talk a lot about on this show is, no two product management jobs are the same. Yeah. And that has a lot to do with the fact that, well, certainly, of, of course, no two companies are the same, but there is a very distinct rhythm to a smaller and mm-hmm. growing organization versus mm-hmm. an organization that's still growing, but has spread out a little and, and rooted a little. Because you have the experience specifically here at Inspire of having been part of that team of a dozen or so, and now being part of a team that's kind of closer to 50, what is the difference, the, the biggest differences? So um, the biggest difference to me is, is process building. So when I joined, um, we had clear mandates, we had clear goals. Um, our mission was more or less formed, but there weren't uh, existing processes to attack a lot of the problems we saw. So. Um, what's changed most for me is that there are now frameworks for addressing those problems. There are now uh, people we have hired specifically to solve those problems. And over time, roles get more specialized. People are hired to do specific things. Um, there's a little, maybe a little less creativity and a little more execution, um, or the creativity has sort of been uh, 50% baked and we have the ideas, our big creative ideas in place, and now it's a matter of sketching them out uh, using the existing frameworks and the existing processes that we've built. So. Um, the, diff- the biggest difference to me is just the way things are done on a day-to-day basis is predictable and repeatable. 
Uh, and that was sort of one of our, our big rallying cries for growth is to make that process where we could have a framework for succeeding rather than just when I joined it was, hey, here are the fires, go put them out. Here's the opportunities as we see them go deliver uh, us some theses on how we can solve customer problems in those areas. Um, and there wasn't really a, a framework for building the products to address those. Does it become, I mean, I know that you love this company yeah. and, and you're mission driven, yeah. but does it, does it become boring once there's no more fires to put out? Like there's a sort of beautiful irony yeah. to process yeah. that, you know, bringing it in is this exercise of, of bringing sanity, of bringing mm. efficiency, of allowing scalability. And then I think oftentimes for a lot of people who found their stride, being all over the place and and contributing value in that way and then suddenly yeah. it's like oh no we have an onboarding specialist <laughs> now we yeah. you don't need to worry about that anymore yep. and your job role kind of shrinks and it gets quiet well thankfully it hasn't gotten quiet uh there are still plenty of fires to put out i still feel like that is sort of my day-to-day -day job interestingly i was a little worried about what that transition would look like for me um what it looked like for our company. Interestingly, we've stayed super vital. We've really maintained um, a young company mindset and what we call a beginner's mindset at all times. There's not really baked processes where people feel like there's no room for creativity left. And, and the challenge has become um, much more of a, a teamwork challenge rather than one person trying to work all night long to, to attack a problem. It's now a, an issue of coordination, getting the right people in the room to address the problem, um, putting our design team together with our tech team, putting um, our CEO's ideas, uh, you know, in, into practice and, and bringing those to life. So, um, I've I've loved the the experience. Frankly, uh, it's been an incredible learning experience for me as someone who really hasn't been on the startup roller coaster before in, in such an explicit way. So, uh, it's a different challenge. I don't find it any any less fun or any less vital. One of the cool things about product is so many of us, I think yourself included. We don't come in the front door. Yeah. We end up in these roles or we're able to sort of retrospectively go, I guess this is what I've been doing. But it's it's usually the culmination of a lot of disparate working experiences in business domain or in the design domain mm -hmm. or in the technology domain. You talked about kind of your past as, uh, as a lawyer. What are some of the other experiences in your life that you think readied you for this role yeah great question so i think just being a junkie for this stuff like i am an avid consumer of podcasts and uh, i i play with every new product that i can find and uh, i think just having that mentality of of being an early adopter of being the person who wants to try the new gadget who wants to be at, you know five steps ahead of the curve on uh, on the new piece of software that's out there has has really informed what I do and I, I tell a lot of people who ask me sort of hey what is product what does product mean to you a lot of it is just the passion for being an early adopter for trying new things before they hit the mainstream for uh, for that sort of tinker mentality uh, and I think that's what in a lot of ways that homework that it doesn't feel like homework but it is homework has, has really prepared me for this job so it's interesting about that because and, and I agree, I think I've seen that a lot in product people. There's definitely there's definitely an early adopter symptom sure. that, that tends yeah. to get us on the same side of this line. And then ironically, that can be a handicap because oftentimes you're selling to people who are not early adopters. They yeah. might be part of that late majority on, 
on the bell curve. And, and I think that's a little bit true about Inspire. So I, maybe we pause, tell us, tell our listeners, mm-hmm. what's Inspire? Yeah. Is it Inspire energy? Is it Inspire? Do we go by Inspire these days? You're so dropping the energy? We're, we're dropping the energy, I think. Okay. Yeah. But you're not dropping the energy. No. We're still, so we have a, yeah, that's a, that's a good case in point right there. So let's start there. Um, we use what's called uh, retail energy as sort of our means to enter and execute and, and scale our business, right? So what that means is in um, deregulated states, which the majority of Americans live in deregulated states, states like Texas or New York or Pennsylvania or Ohio or Illinois, uh, you can choose who supplies your energy, just like you can choose who provides your cell phone plan. So, uh, we are one of those companies that that actually goes out and sells energy supply, and we we uh, serve clean power uh, in in those markets. So, um, you have an existing utility here, probably LADWP or SoCal Edison. Um, if this was a deregulated market in California, it's not. You'd be able to choose your energy provider um, on the open market. It's also known as energy competition. So. Uh, we serve clean power products in those markets as, a, as an energy supplier. Um, but one of the reasons we are dropping the energy is that we are starting to have a broader conversation with our customers beyond just energy. So energy is one input to your home, uh, but there are a whole bunch that have a, a really key uh, impact on your environmental footprint. So your water usage, that's particularly uh, important in California. Um, the maintenance you do to your house, so your your building envelope dictates a lot about your energy usage, especially as it pertains to HVAC. So um, we're using energy sort of as a, a wedge to begin to have a broader conversation with our customers around um, the operating efficiency of their home, um, about how they can both lessen their impact and invest in their home from, from this point of view. And let's talk a little bit about customer development, because yeah. for me, this is, this is a fascinating piece. So we talk a lot uh, on the show with companies that are they're in software, they're in advanced technologies, and and there's a certain amount of the market or their audience is is at the same pace, more or less, mm-hmm. maybe not quite as caught up. But you're talking to homeowners across the United States, maybe some people who skew in a demographic far older than kind of the average age of folks working here in this office. And you're talking about relatively new concepts, renewables. Mm -hmm. So what has the experience been like of communicating to that demo of selling your product? What have you guys learned about that? Yes, what we've learned is, I I would say, two key things. One is that education is imperative. It's not really a product that you can sell off the shelf. It's not toilet paper. It's not soap. It's not something where everyone knows what they want. So you have to educate people. Why why do I want this? Why is this important to me? Um, So education is the first thing we've really learned. And the second thing we've learned is that it's often more fruitful not to have a conversation about energy, to talk to people about their impact on the planet, to talk to people about the operating efficiency of their homes, to talk about moving away from uh, dirty resources like coal um, as just the smart modern decision, uh, like any other kind of smart modern decision you make. Um, So the, the other real lesson I think is that we don't take it as a given that people care about energy and we can convince them to care about energy. We uh, have the discussion with them on the terms that are most relevant to them, and uh, we've undertaken a pretty robust segmentation process and developed really, really specific personas to the point that I, you know, I feel like Eric, our key persona, is one of my best friends. I, I use the name Eric probably 15 or 20 times a day. Can you tell uh, us about him? Yeah, I'll tell you everything about Eric. <laughs> okay, um, great. Yeah, so um, Eric's an early adopter. Uh, that's kind of the first thing you need to know about Eric. Um, 
Eric really cares about uh, being the person that brings to his or her friends, and it does skew pretty heavily male uh, based on our research, um, the the newest and best thing for being one step ahead. When someone asks him at a cocktail party, hey, have you heard about XYZ? Or goes, yeah, actually I've tried it, and here are the three things you really need to know about that product. Um, you know, Eric is a uh, sort of nester. He has, a, he has a home and he really likes to nest, but in a very particular way. He likes to um, to really focus on comfort and convenience, especially as it pertains to gadgetry and smart, te smart technology, um, and really likes to look under the hood of those things, so not only buy it and install it, but go learn about what the competitors do, how they do it differently. In the case of smart tech, maybe think about um, the platform implications, whether it's Apple HomeKit or uh, whether it's what Amazon's doing via the Alexa. So he's really a under the hood person as well. How many personas kind of drafted, documented, pinned to the walls? Literally, you see those? Those are them right there on the wall. How many are there? Yeah, three. Three personas. Yeah, three, okay. three key personas that we've understood to reflect our customer base two of which we're gonna uh, actively be targeting and are, are really focused on as sort of the customers of the future for us. Can you share with us a little bit of the process of, of building personas? Because you know one of the things that can come up is, oh, it would be nice to do personas properly mm. if we had you know a complete UX team or if we had the resources or if we had the time. And yeah. There are other aspects in, in any product business, I think, where you're battling constraints. Sure. So what has been your process, your team's process of arriving at these really fleshed out, really clear, I know Eric, he's my best friend and yeah. it's on the wall. Just how, you know, talk to us about how you got there. Sure, absolutely. So um, first of all, I would say, I think there's a, a fallacy out there that you need to have someone in-house with expertise. You need to have um, someone on your team or hire someone who's really, really good at this. We used a, a, a consultant and she was fantastic and really got us off the ground. And I, I feel like you can lay a foundation and with existing resources really begin to uh, to use personas as a, as a tool to your advantage. So I would, I would have that sort of caveat on people who think they don't have the resources for it. It doesn't always take a ton of resources and I think it's a really worthwhile investment. Um, how we've developed Eric into sort of our best friend uh, you know, it starts with a lot of data. It starts with understanding your existing customer base. Uh, I think that there's a lot of focus with us as well on who we want our customers to be as we think, as we take the, the larger commercial context and say, who's gonna be the customer of our future if, if our goal is to have this conversation and to uh, have the, that conversation about X, Y, and Z products, who are we really going to resonate with? Uh, and, and so that was a, a big part of our process as well. It's also uh, laying out user stories and saying, um, here's the, the, the customer problem, here's why we think we're going to solve it. Uh, and then it's really just a lot of hard work. Uh, we did a ton of surveys, um, we pulled a lot of third-party data, um, we did a lot of focus groups, including internal focus groups. I think that's one really cool hack that we did is we did a segmentation study of our employees and we said, okay, who is an Eric, who's a Robert, who's a Karen, who doesn't fall into any of those groups, answer this 10-question survey. Then we got everyone in the company to sit in focus groups based on their persona and just ask them questions, really did a deep dive on, on the psychology of being one of those personas. And I think that's a really cheap hack you can do. It takes uh, maybe an hour, an hour and a half for one of these. And uh, we had everyone from our, our CEO and C-suite employees on down sitting in these and just giving feedback and you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe the aha moments. I mean, we had uh, Mike Durst, our CTO, had a hilarious moment where the, after this is all over, he, he goes, 
I just want to know, was I born a Robert or did I become a Robert? And we had this huge existential discussion about if you're born a persona, nature versus nurture. So, um, you know, I think our process was was really a laborious one where we invested the time in having the conversations uh, internally and externally. Well, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting way to approach that challenge because, like we talked about, yeah. sometimes being on the inside of the product team can be a handicap because you're used to seeing the world the way you see the world and the way you see the world is more advanced and more knowledgeable about certain types of things than perhaps your customer. And then oh. at the same time, just by kind of playing musical chairs, yeah. you can, you know, you may still have that handicap, but somebody inside of the company can sort of step over and say, well, I can, I am that person. This is so true. And especially as an early adopter, you have this mentality of, oh, I know this, I've studied it. I've, you know, we have this huge internal tech testing process for smart technology. We're getting a lot of really cool devices and trying them out in our own homes. And you develop these really strong opinions on why something is good or bad or works or doesn't. And then to put yourself in the shoes, and we have a really uh, diverse set of employees and put your shoes and put yourself in the shoes of, of one of them and see it from their perspective is really enlightening because you come to these really firm conclusions as an early adopter about what's good, what's bad, what you'll never touch with a 10-foot pole, and you see pretty readily that people just attack the questions in a completely different way and come to completely different uh, conclusions as a result. When we talk about software as a service, yep. right, which we're all very familiar with, we have, we have come to accept that service is product if the service is coming to us in the form of automation. Mm -hmm and we accept that software is product. But what's interesting I think about Inspire is even though you're a technology company, mm -hmm. you're not you're not a, a software company. Sure. You're, so what is product actually? I mean, what are your products? Yeah, that's a, um, what is product is a question we've had to answer and has been a, a key part of my job as sort of uh, the one of the general managers here and, um, and you know, part of my role has been just being an evangelist for products and product processes. Say, hey, here's what product does. Here's an example of how product works. Um, here's what shipping and MVP looks like. Here's how we'd learn from that. Here's how we'd iterate based on those learnings. And take that to all corners of our organization and say, um, what do you think? Give me feedback. Is this going to work? How do we make this our own? Um, how is this different in our context where we are doing it? You know, we're uh, um, serving an energy product as opposed to shipping another feature for a you know education software tool, which might be the more standard context you'd see a, a SaaS product. So, um, what it means for Inspire, I think, um, is still evolving. But I would tell you that the fundamental uh, assumption we have is um, how do we get how do we get learnings quicker and more efficiently. So if we're trying to launch a whole new suite of products, if we're um, if we're expanding our existing product suite as we are, um, how do we know what works and what doesn't and how do we uh, have those learnings as quickly as possible and with the, the, the least amount of investment as possible? So that's really, I think, the mandate for product is getting as much knowledge as cheaply as possible uh, and not invest, not, not throwing good money after bad and, and putting a lot of money into something before you really know whether it's going to work. So that's sort of the core mandate for us. Um, what it looks like in practice is... Um, uh, we have a head of product. Um, we have me as the product lead, as the general manager of product categories, and we have we have three product managers uh, who sit beneath me. Um, we have uh, sort of 
pool tech resources and, and design resources. We have really we have a really strong CTO and a really strong senior designer who um, it's not uh, in some organizations like, hey, write requirements and pass them off and then set a meeting to a week later to see how it went um, or talk about it in your standup. It's we all sit in a room and write the requirements together. It's a it's a design product and tech collaborative experience. Um, we're working on one moonshot product right now where um, in order to write the requirements set, we literally just took two days. We all flew to, uh, to the East Coast, sat down, and just wrote it together. Why Didn't the East Coast? The you needed to be colder in order to... <laughs> well, we're dual headquartered, so we have uh, an office in Philadelphia, and so we just went there to hold ourselves up and uh, not be distracted. So that's a, that's a really, it's a really collaborative process. In other words, we aren't the sort of typical shop where you have... PM, PMM, four or five engineers, a QA engineer, and uh, you know an ecosystem that all reports up to a head of product. Um, we have we are really collaborative and have a lot of shared resources and um, are really focused on being a, one of the we think the first product driven organizations in energy. Is there a big sales force as part of the company? There is. So uh, the majority of our employees are in sales. Uh, we're an omni-channel company, so we do everything from uh, intercepting you at a retail store like a Home Depot to um, really robust digital campaigns. And uh, and so, yeah, we have a lot of folks in sales that are trying a lot of different channels and, and really trying to innovate on that experience as well. Because it strikes me that because your products are the packaging of different services, mm -hmm and that what you're selling is in some ways a lifestyle and a mission, yep. right? That a lot of your work as a product manager, the work of the product management team, where so many people are, are interfacing regularly with devs and, mm -hmm. and you know, facing into Pivotal Tracker, Jira, and mm -hmm. watching the icebox, a lot of what you're doing is interfacing with that frontline team more directly and standing up experiments right on the ground and saying, okay, let's, Let's grab up these ideas and try them. I mean, is, is that how it's working? Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. A lot of what I do is, uh, you know, scientific experimentation, I like to think of it as. And a lot of it is sort of vision-based. A lot of it is actual boots-on-the-ground testing. So let's arm our sales team to have this product in these controlled circumstances. And here's the cohort uh, that we're going to use as a control group. And uh, if that doesn't work, we'll expand it in X, Y, and Z ways. And that'll be our new experiment. And, and a lot of it is really just arming the sales team with what they need to succeed. Because this term minimum viable product has, I think, devolved. As it's been more and more readily embraced, the core understanding, mm -hmm. people have moved further and further away. Mm -hmm. People use it a lot of the times, I think, interchangeably with minimum releasable feature set sure, or, yeah. or even beta build. You know, they're calling a beta platform an MVP. But an MVP is, is as it was originally defined, that experiment that teaches you the most about something with the least amount of output and effort. Mm -hmm. Is there an experiment that you have conducted recently that you can share with us just to give us a flavor for that kind of true MVP that says, all right, we have, a, we have an assumption. Yeah, well, we're conducting one right now that I think is, uh, that is really fascinating. And it sort of gets back to this notion of uh, the operational cost of your home. So we've been um, delivering to our customers in a, a variety of different packages insights about how they use energy and insights about their home, right? When, when someone becomes an Inspire customer, we get information about them, their, what their average annual usage is, how their, their consumption patterns change over time, where they live, basic things like that to be, to be able to serve them. Um, and we have a really incredible um, data analytics team that takes that data and parses it 
um, works with other data sets like you know, existing data sets about your area, whether it's the, the property characteristics, uh, the fuel type, whether it's uh, the weather trends in your area, and produces um, really particular insights um, about how you can save money, about how you can lessen your impact, and then uh, uses that as a launching pad to, to sort of further the conversation into other inputs to your home. So we're, we're running experiments right now about how to deliver that, that, those insights. So um, whether it's via email, whether you're going to want it via SMS, are we gonna, should we package it as a uh, home investment piece? Should we package it as um, a, a way of uh, lowering your environmental footprint? Is it a, um, a, a way for you to save on energy bills? So uh, we've been conducting uh, a series of experiments around this notion of uh, you know, having a more efficient, uh, a more efficient home and a more modern home, and uh, using sort of our data analytics team as a uh, as a vehicle for that. Are you relying on those early adopters to kind of spread the word, or is it we're really just right now because it's such a complicated product mm. to sell? Right now, we're effective if we can sell to people who want to embrace new technologies or who are sort of mission-driven, the Eric's, as you yeah. kind of describe them. Or are you thinking about how you're going to have to repackage and, and re-educate and rethink delivery for that next tranche of customers that maybe wants to save money, right? I, I use, I'll sidestep for a moment. Yeah. One of the examples I use a lot in class when I talk about customer segmentation is, mm -hmm. is Prius, right? Mm -hmm. And LA is a good market to talk about Prius because it's Karen done so our, well. We call Karen our Prius person, so it's, uh, it's apropos. Right, so here's Prius and, and Prius sort of comes into the market and says, I know you're all car drivers, but keep your hand up if you also care about the environment. And then, you know, a ton of people put their hand down and a handful of people remain and they're like, okay, I'm going after you. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you imagine that as Prius gained traction over time, the people that started to come into the fold of that weren't necessarily people who cared about the environment. I mean, they don't hate the environment actively, but it's not a primary yeah. motivator, but like saving money on gases, right? Right. And, you know, getting my family comfortably to the soccer game or being able to park easily. So then sort of these other secondary benefits of the product start to become that value proposition that lures new segments in. So do you, do you guys know how you're going to approach that next group of people? Yes and no. Um, I say no because we're always open to the latest data point and we don't want to sort of fully bake any processes before we have the opportunity to learn more. Um, so with that caveat, uh, yeah, I think we do. Um, right now we're in the process of parsing out who in our user set is that early adopter, really figuring out who the Eric's are, uh, why they're Eric's, why they came to us if they are an Eric, uh, and how we leverage them to be sort of the, mic the megaphones, the microphones for our business, uh, the amplifiers for our business. Um, and you know, I think it's our belief that uh, if you can get the early adopters on board, get them raving about your product, there will be sort of a, a natural uptick in, uh, in uptake um, for the product. And then, um, yeah, I think you know, as I shared with you before, the way you um, the way you expand this product beyond just energy nerds, beyond people who just look under the hood, is to not necessarily have a conversation about energy. 
to tell a, a bigger story about um, you know, we're here to, to make your home more operationally efficient. You have a lot of uh, ways of, of seeing you know, the value of your home, whether it's Zillow or Trulia or Redfin. Um, they can tell you a lot about uh, the trends in home value, but there isn't a lot of information out there about um, why your home costs as much as it does on a monthly basis, uh, which can be, if anyone's a homeowner, a really, really sneaky uh, 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 sort of source of expense. So uh, if we can have that broader conversation with our customers and say, one way you can do that is to power your home with, with clean energy to, to allow us to source you a clean energy product. Um, you know, I think that can be a really powerful message that gets you beyond the people who raise their hand and say, oh, I'm going to do this because, um, you know, because I'm an environmentalist. And the solar industry is a great example. You know, they call it the solar coaster because of all of the ups and downs in the, in the stock market. You've seen the news about Tesla and Solar City. They're really in that sort of uh, death valley between early adopters and people who are mission driven and the houses that are really inefficient and it's really easy to save and uh, and are trying to find that solution. We think our, our business is positioned to sort of avoid that just because we don't require that sort of construction because we've wired ourselves to think beyond just energy, just beyond the early adopters from day one. Well, what I think is fascinating and, and exciting we talk about mission driven I'm part of my sort of personal mission is a lot around kind of access yeah. and especially when we talk to women on the show when we talk to people who are underrepresented on the show we tend to talk a lot about you know your experiences and unfortunately those experiences sometimes come in the form of yeah some guy told me I wasn't smart enough to know how to do that right. or um, I get sort of boxed out or technology gets thrown at me as a way of deterring me from yeah, participating. Yeah, I heard on the Beachbody episode. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So I think, you know, you said your demo skews heavily toward male, and I think what's interesting is there's probably some of that residual piece too. I mean, nobody understands energy. Mm. Not a lot of people do. Sure. And, and so part one of what you have been doing successfully, it sounds like, is just bringing the idea of environmental consciousness and clean energy and you know cost savings and renewability into the home but with these new forays into data there's potentially an opportunity to educate a lot of us about the fundamentals of energy and how we can participate and there there's a movement there this goes beyond just adopting the product and making the sale yep. but you can empower people there's, there's a good pun in there. <laughs> you can empower people to have these sort of dashboards themselves yeah. and drive it with you. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think I just caught up to what you guys were doing. Yeah, that was my aha Yeah, there you go. You're like, yes, Suzanne, that's what I've been trying to tell you for an hour. <laughs> no, I think you're exactly right. And I think um, we're trying to take a lot of the complexity out of it and give people, you know, we have used that phrase dashboard for your home before internally, and it just give you something that isn't this sort of wonky, this appliance is using this much at this time, and you should be aware of that, more just a, a more relatable, a more human way to understand energy and, and, and the impact on the world around us and how you can uh, make decisions for your home that are more in line with the decisions you make every day, whether it's taking an Uber instead of a cab or using Airbnb instead of a, a hotel. Uh, we sort of see ourselves in that next generation of, why are you taking the utilities dirty power? Why are you uh, consuming power without being thoughtful about it? Why are you making these decisions for your home without considering 
considering the, sort of the, the multifaceted um, elements that we can set forth in front of you. So, yeah, hopefully you did catch up. I think that, that yeah. You but I can't get well. Inspire in LA, or I can't. Not yet. But it's uh, coming? It's coming. You yeah. guys are going to disrupt. We're developing, yeah. Yeah, you bet. We're gonna LADWP watch its back, essentially. <laughs> Don't say that, those LADWP guys. Uh, yeah, I've seen uh, I've seen Chinatown. I know how powerful the, those folks are. Uh, but yeah, no, we are we're developing products that are national in footprint and we're expanding new geographies on a, a monthly basis. So it's coming soon. Amazing, amazing. Because you well, let's talk about your Swiss Army approach to yeah. getting in here. Have yeah. you used that approach to success in other, like, are you the kind of guy that just like, you see a thing and you're like, I'm, if not through the door, then through the window, if not through the window, <laughs> then through the ceiling? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and more than that, um, I think I'm just willing to, uh, I'm willing to go where I can provide value. Uh, and that often isn't what you expect when you come into a company. I'm not sure if you've had that experience in the past, but you come in with a specific mandate and it turns out that um, actually where you can add most value just because of the complexities of the organization is someplace completely different. And I, I'm, I embrace that and think, look, and that's obviously extremely vital to the product as well. Um, you may come in with, a, with development chops and think you're going to be the guy who sits next to the CTO and is that sort of PM and then you're going to get in and really the need is, is for someone to work really closely with the design team. Uh, and that's sort of my thesis is that go to a company where I think I can add a ton of value and then go where the value is and see if I can uh, drive the company forward. Um, and I think that is, that's really served me well. And, and that is a thesis is just, it's a good substitute for what product really is too. I mean, product, uh, especially at a company of this size, maybe if you don't, if you go to a place with 500 engineers and 50 PMs, it'll be a different experience. But at a company of this size, that I think that really is uh, what product is supposed to do. Yeah, we, we recently published an article on the site that was, you know, five unconventional tips for getting a product management yeah. job. And, and one of them was, it, it, it's always amazing to me when people are out looking, and I understand yeah. there's pressure when you need to find a job, but oftentimes people forget to think about themselves in the equation. Mm. And I think you're such a, a great testament to no, if I'm gonna get up every day and be a part of something, I wanna be a part of something that moves me. Yeah. I mean, you're passionate about the environment. You're yeah. passionate about energy. So you're here not because there was an opening for a product manager role. In fact, there wasn't. You just kind right. of jammed yourself in. But also because you found a company that was doing something that aligned with you. And how do you, so I think, sounds like you would validate that approach of go where you want to go follow absolutely. your personal why absolutely but i'm wondering if you have any advice for our listeners this is kind of on our you know how to get the job let's yeah. say we've got listeners out there that are like you they're yeah. passionate and they're thinking man i love basketball i just want to be involved in something basketball or i love beer <laughs> it doesn't yeah, matter yeah, right yeah. it's whatever i love and I don't necessarily have the on-paper skill set of a product manager. How do I go and get in there? Yep. What would you tell somebody? Yeah, yeah, it's such an important question. And you know, I, the first thing I would say is let that passion seep through. Go w work your network, uh, take every meeting you can get your hands on and just let that passion be clear. Um, more so than skill, we're focused on culture. This organization, we have a, a mission-driven culture. Um, we, you know, we call ourselves Climate Avengers, and we're extremely focused on sort of delivering on this promise. And 
we just generally speaking won't hire people if they, they don't exude that, that same mentality and don't have our sort of um, core beliefs uh, and, and sort of reflect our core tenets about the business we want to build. So I would say you have to just exude that. If you are really that passionate, um, go have that really geeky, if it's basketball, go have that really geeky, you know, conversation about advanced statistics. Or um, if it's beer, we'll brew it in your bathtub and go and, <laughs> and, and bring that experience to the interview and say, yeah, I'm actually working on a logger right now in my bathtub. I'm having this problem. How would you fix it? Here's the framework I'm thinking about. If you, I think that's, if I had that interview, I'd be thrilled if someone's like, I'm trying to solve the problem and here's how I'm thinking about it. And I'm doing it in my bathtub because I just, I just care that much about it. Um, so I think letting that... Uh, that passion seep through is extremely important, and frankly, I, we're we're reticent to hire anyone who isn't able to show that in our interview process. This is perhaps a little tangential, but you've got me thinking about it. For people who want to be part of a radical idea, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of us are sitting around, we're looking at the world, we're watching it transform, we're aware that like shit's getting messy and bad. Yeah. And I watched we, the debate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not, forget politics. I mean, that, yeah, that's definitely something else. But we're looking at the environment. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're listening to the discourse around climate change. And, and we're also thinking, is the best that I can do this, this service or this product mm-hmm. that's not necessarily advancing humanity, that's not making the world better? But I don't know how to get connected to that so this I'm rambling a little but I guess my question is if I'm a person who wants to contribute to making the world better in a meaningful way but I don't know how to start how do I start uh, wait six months and use Inspire's product. No, um, no, you just described the exact consumer problem. Uh, you know, we sit at this sort of odd intersection, but the the thread that seems to connect it all is um, that people really care. They want to make a difference. Um, they don't care about the nuts and bolts. They don't care about the commodity, but they care about the overall movement. Um, and you know, our mission is to make that really easy and really simple and really straightforward and really seamless. Um, so that's that is exactly the thing we're working on, uh, and we'll have a, a lot of products to to address exactly that question and, and sort of one main moonshot product. But what I would tell you is, um, people make a series of decisions every day, and um, people get in routines and don't think about them. But driving somewhere as opposed to biking, checking to see if there's a public transportation option, um, going to sleep and, and leaving the AC on just because you weren't thinking about it. Um, Switching to a, a new apartment and not asking those basic questions like, "Hey, when you know, what's the insulation like? What are the doors and windows like? When were they replaced? Am I going to lose all my heat through there?" I'm going. There's a, tons of, of companies that will give you a free energy audit. They will tell you, um, you know, how you can make your life more efficient. Um, but there are these just really little decisions that people make on a daily basis that have become so ingrained and so automatic um, that we don't think of them as an opportunity to make a difference, uh, and they are. And I think it just takes. Um, elevating in people's consciousness that those daily decisions do matter. You need a likable blogger persona who can be the voice, the direct voice to all of those people I just described who are sitting around going, is there a website I can go to that can teach me? And And it's like, post. Stop using paper towels immediately if that's what you're doing to wipe your counters. Post. Riding your bike to work, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, 
I'm looking at you and yeah. your beard and I'm thinking it's like <laughs> some likable guy with a beard just like telling me this stuff. Yeah, and we're really focused on content for that reason. We go to our website, we have hundreds of articles on, or even hundreds, dozens of articles on, um, hey, uh, five tips for cooking in a more environmentally, uh, or a more, you know, a, a way that has less impact on the environment. Um, six tips for um, smart tech products, and if this, then that. Uh, formulas you can program to help you save energy. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, and so we're really, really focused on producing content that's sort of the highest quality of the quality that's really trustworthy and relatable um, that addresses this. And I think eventually that gets into it as people get hooked on that and it actually works for them and they see it works for them, that elevates to a larger conversation about the bigger changes they can make in their life to to address those problems. Well, it does, it does raise the reality of your market position influences your marketing strategy, which that's the obvious part. But what I mean is in a market that's new, right? Because you're selling a new kind of energy and a new kind of approach to it. So in a lot of ways, you are a new company in a new market. When you enter into a market and there's competitors, you can spend a lot of your time repositioning against competitors. And you can bypass the education expense entirely because somebody else did that hard work for you. So you get to swoop in and just be the smarter, better, faster, cleaner interface, cheaper, whatever the thing. Mm -hmm. But you guys have to build the whole story out. Mm. And that's a significant investment. And and probably a long sales cycle too. Because it's like, no, just give them those hacks, give them those tips, show them how the world is changing remind them that we'll be here and ready to help them take the next step. That's exactly right. And so much what we do is investing in long-term relationships with our customers. We call them members. And uh, the the way we see this is the utilities relationship with you is disposable. They're a government monopoly. Um, They're not going to invest a dollar in furthering that relationship, in uh, developing your trust, because when you move to town, uh, they're the default. They get your business no matter what. So why would they invest in uh, making you happy? In making in having them trust you, and that is really the foundation we do is saying, hey, we are a trusted advisor in your path to making modern decisions, in your path to investing in your home so that it's more operationally efficient, and in in your path to just making those day to day decisions that that uh, impact both sort of your satisfaction with your contribution and feeling like you're part of a mission and impact the planet as a whole. So. Um, we are we are taking a really really long cycle approach. We anticipate it'll take years to sort of position ourselves as this really trusted advisor, and and we take a lot of uh, a lot of pride in that. And and it comes at great expense, but it's something we're really delighted to do, and and we hope is reflected in our customer relationships. What is an example? And I agree entirely. You know, companies that it's like, oh, this is where you have to go to get yeah. that. Um, they don't embrace the customer experience. Yeah. What are some examples of things that, that Inspire does for its customers that immediately showcases the difference between working with the energy company yep. and working with you? Yeah, I love telling these stories. So for one, we have, um, actually I heard on the last podcast that um, it, was a, it was a cool feature that people actually called customer service. Well, people call us all the time. And we have college-educated, mission-driven, 
people who have studied this industry, know it cold, um, are able to make recommendations for you to how to, um, to how to optimize your home. And that's just our customer service for us. That's the people who answer the phone when you call our 1-800 number. And I think that's a key moment of delay where you're used to calling AT&T or your local utility company and you're going to be on hold for 30 minutes and you're going to get someone who's unhappy to be working for the local government monopoly. Our hold times are like three seconds on average and you talk to someone who's super knowledgeable and wants to help and is armed with um, you know, a lot of training and a lot of investment on our part to make them um, an advocate for you. So that's, that's right off the bat what comes to mind. Um, the next thing is that within a, a month or so of becoming a member, we're going to start delivering these insights to you. We're going to say, hey, here's how much you used. Here's why you used it. Here's how much you used relative to the, the people around you. Here's some, s some tips to really change that. And then we're going to link you out to all this content I've been talking about that we've been developing and uh, are really, really proud of. So um, that's another way. We have a surprise and delight campaign. So we'll just send people smart tech. So we send people... Uh, LED light bulbs and said, you know, here's a bright idea. Put this in your home. It's for free. It's because we love you as a customer. We do a lot of surprise and delight things of that nature. Um, and the list goes on, but those are, uh, I think, a few good examples. Like I'm one foot out the door to Philadelphia right now. <laughs> I'm not a big Flyers fan or Winter fan for that matter. But Winter's overrated. But I like what you guys are doing. Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. And it's, it's one of those things where... Um, people have taken it for granted for so long that they had to work with the utilities. They had to have this terrible experience. They had to not really have any transparency into why they were using energy. And it's kind of, I think, surprising and refreshing that someone's thinking about a different option. Tell us about a time where you really messed up or, you know, you had to learn the hard way about learning on the job. And you thought, oh, okay. So that's what product management is. Oops. Yeah. So um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I don't have a specific example in mind, but sort of the, the, the symptom that comes to mind is when product tries to eat the rest of the organization and product feels like, um, look, we have all the answers. We're the vision people. We're the roadmap people. Line up behind us to do your jobs. I think that um, in a lot of organizations it works that way, but Inspire being such a young company and being in such a complex market and having um, such strong technical capabilities and such strong data and analytics capabilities, um, the process is truly more collaborative than I think you'd see elsewhere. Um, and, and so I think um, a huge learning experience for me has been as we develop product processes and really uh, reposition ourselves to be a, pro a product-driven organization has been this isn't going to be um, the product show. This is going to be um, product humbly working in the background to get the right people in the right room to have the right discussions and uh, to arm the right people with the right data and the right resources to get the job done. Um, and though sort of product was this, being a product driven organization, this industry was sort of a big, splashy new idea. At the end of the day, the product's uh, product role is um, sort of set a vision, set a roadmap, be thoughtful about that, develop that in coordination with the right stakeholders, and then get out of the way and let people do their jobs and, and sort of be the oversight and coordination function by and large. So um, that was a that's been a learning curve for our business, and I think it's ended it a, a really or is, has evolved to and is continuing to evolve to a place where. Um, it's extremely collaborative, and I think everyone feels a great deal of ownership, and that's super important to us as a product organization and us as a company. Humble product management. Yeah, I think from so. From your friends that inspire. Yeah, yeah, because you know, uh, you read about uh, places like, you know, Facebook and the early companies that were really product driven and were really empowering their engineers to run the show, and you can get this sort of sense of, wow, you know, product is it? Product is the future. Product is the big ideas, and. 
yes and no, sometimes maybe. Um, but in reality, I think at Inspire, at least, it's, it's a facilitator for a broader collaboration. Right. Like it's, I can't tell if what we do is really, really cool or really, really boring. Yeah. And maybe it's okay. It's okay that it's boring. Embrace the boredom. Embrace the slide decks. Uh, <laughs> you just have to. There's no way around it. Um, and, you know, I'm not technical. I don't come from a technical background. I come from a sort of a technical energy background, but not a, a, a sort of software development background. And so I've had to eat humble pie a lot on, hey, I don't, can you please tell me what this thing means? Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help you build a data product, but you're going to need to inform me about the, the basics. You know, I can't write SQL and you're going to have to give me a, a helping hand here. So um, there is a lot of, I think it's informed by sort of the, the people you have in the company too. Well, what's inspirational as well about that is for anybody who's listening, certainly for anybody who's listening and thinking, I love energy, they should probably come and talk to you yeah, about getting I'd love a job. To. We have a, lot of few, you know, a few jobs open for sure. Okay. And, but I think also for anybody who's listening in and kind of doing a little self audit about their skills to know that there are companies yep. out there where product is absolutely a role. And that that role can look very different Absolutely. and that that role can embrace you if you're not technical and if that's not even what drives you, that there's yep. a place for you. A hundred percent. And in hiring for product roles, one thing that I've really realized is that there's probably five or six or maybe even seven different standard molds. So there's the sort of... Uh, developer mold, there's the scrappy, passionate person mold, there's the life cycle marketer role or, or mold where people have had roles where they understand everything from acquisition to retention and sort of infuse that into product. There's certainly the UX and design folks and you see this really diverse set of um, set of backgrounds and then there's sort of the big picture commercial strategy and vision people as well and um, oftentimes you can companies think they need one of them and you come in and you pitch them on why they need another and they'll agree. I think that's certainly been our experience in hiring for product roles is that um, you need them all eventually and if you find the person who's going to be the right cultural fit and have the right attitude and, and be the builder that you need, the skill sets are somewhat malleable. What is your favorite thing about product management? Um, other than the slide decks? Uh, <laughs> uh, whiteboarding probably. Whiteboarding is... You guys have all these, I'm looking around, you yeah. have whiteboard walls. Yeah, you're, we're in a room with a corkboard wall and a whiteboard wall and then a wall with a big TV This on is like when people is. imagine what startups look like. Sure. This is it. Yeah, there's some customer journeys there and some postcards. I don't even think those post-its have any meaning. No. They just look They're really cool. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, That's our design team at work, actually. Um, no, I, I love the, you know, I love being at the office at 10 o'clock with one other person and someone, you know, someone says an idea you know, yeah, that actually could work. Like, what would that look like? And then you just end up in front of a whiteboard, sketching out what the testing environment would look like, and you know, sketching out uh, what the the user story looks like. And um, that, to me, is the most fun of product. It's the big picture stuff. It's the vision stuff. It's thinking about what's next, and then taking sort of a, uh, you know, the 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 beginnings of a product to the rest of the organization it's like hey we have this is this something if this were to be something what would it look like to sales uh, could we sell it what would it how would this fit in our larger brand story you say to marketing and tech could you build this and um, that to me is the the most fun part do you have 
Andrew, any recommended resources that you want to contribute to our ever-growing resource <laughs> I've seen list. your library. There's some good ones in there for sure. Um, yeah, I do. So um, most people probably know First Round Review, but they have a whole dedicated kind of product section that's a must-read. Um, I really, in terms, I'm a big podcast guy, so I'll, I'll throw a couple podcasts in there. One is the Andreessen Horowitz podcast, A16Z. Um, just in terms of big picture strategy and having that commercial context and everything you build, it's abs- it's it's must listen. It's really vital. Um, the thing I would say is locally, um, Mark Suster's Both Sides of the Table, that blog, and he has a an interview channel called uh, Both Sides TV. Um, he is uh, he runs upfront. Um, Upfront Ventures here in Santa Monica and has some of the most influential people in tech uh, come on his show and, and also just creates a, I don't know how the guy does it, he creates so much, so much important content. Uh, he's also a really active uh, Twitter presence as well if you're into that sort of thing. So those would be my, my recommendations. Cool. And what about a side of the mug quote that uh, if, if the apocalypse comes sooner <laughs> than hoped I can grab my mug and, and live by your words, feel calm. For product or generally? Just, my life just Andrew Kirchner's life philosophy for getting by. Okay. Um, I'll quote Cormac McCarthy and I'll say, between the wish and thing, the world lies waiting. Amazing. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great resources for anybody looking to learn more about product management or starting a technology business. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. Join me here. We've got a new conversation every Tuesday. We'll see you next time.